Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Michael. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. We've got a couple of bases I think we want to cover. Um, I want to introduce you as our new managing partner at Responsive, and so we'll talk about that for a few moments. Uh, I'll sort of update our our listeners on what that all means, or we both can. Um, and then you've got a big idea or bold opinion that we want to talk about. But uh, before we do that, for any of the formalities, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to a conversation today. I am Michael Dixon. I'm speaking to you today from downtown Chicago, where it's extremely cold and snowy, but that's what 
I've chosen to live in. So I gotta, I gotta not complain about it. Right. It's, uh, it's been a long career of mine, both in corporate sales and in consulting and in nonprofit work, kind of a revolving door where I've gone in and out of the space. And so that's, uh, kind of led me to bumping into you and to your first book and to your personality and your brand and your identity. And I'm pretty excited about being part of the team. Yeah, so for some of our listeners are familiar with it, we have been trying to build out what is responsive fundraising as sort of a next generation consultancy for uh, nonprofit organizations in the 21st century. We've been working on this for quite some time. Uh, A lot of it, uh, the, the first book was certainly the impetus for that. And then some of the communication that we've been having here on the podcast, having conversations that are careful and critical of how we go about what we're doing. And so that has led us to where we sort of find ourselves now in this sort of bootstrapping startup mode. But Michael, I think you know, and uh, for the sake of all of our listeners, so as we've been be- building this thing up and we a lot of it, the building that we have been doing, we've been doing in the midst of the pandemic. So some of these ideas had to literally be completely put on pause. I think we've uh, drove, drove, driven a couple of people nuts on how we sort of put this thing together. Um, and part of that is because I needed somebody to join the team with me who could take a, a leadership spot, somebody who has a, back, a little older than I am with a background like you have, um, and uh, who can help us organize a business and build a team. Uh, so that's what we've asked you to do. Uh, what do you think about that? It's it's uh, it's nice to be identified as the old guy in the room. I really appreciate that. Older, um, just older. <laughs> not oldest or not the not old. You're just older than a you're just older than a 43 year old dumb kid who's still trying to prove himself. That's all you are. We're we're uh, we're we're an interesting we're an interesting team, Jason. You and I have got um, a lot of passion for the business, a lot of uh, a lot of experiences. A lot of my experiences have been in coaching and building teams for clients, mostly in the for profit space, but clearly in the calling on customers, dealing with high net worth individuals, understanding how that happens. And I've got a lot of uh, attitude and opinion. I've got a lot of energy and passion, and I'm having a great time helping you build this out. It's been fascinating. You have, uh, over the past month or two, you have just been a fire hose of names and people for me to follow up on. I've had a great time meeting people all over the country and talking to them about whether this is something they want to, uh, to do with the next phase of their careers. Yeah, and that's uh, we, we that, that's exactly what uh, we want a lot of people to hear, folks. If you're interested in being a part of, like like I said, if you want to be a part of a consultancy that's trying to think carefully and critically about what we do in fundraising in the 21st century for the sake of these nonprofit organizations, I want you to feel like you can reach out to Michael anytime and express that interest because Michael's really going to be building that team for us. I'm going to sort of get out of the way. Anybody who's been on the on the uh, road trip with us thus far knows that uh, I'm better on that particular point building this team and making sure we've got the right expectations for those people on the team. Everybody listening who knows exactly what that adventure looks like thus far with Jason knows that I need to get out of the way. So uh, so if you're interested in perhaps uh, collaborating with us, uh, we generally start with uh, some training put to get put on a road show or something, get you on the podcast, and Michael is the guy to talk to. Uh, Michael, I'm delighted to have you on the team. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you, there's one there's one other element to this whole thing, which is that the team we're building at Responsive is a learning community. You are the first. You're, you're like the chief learner in our group. You're <laughs> always reading. You're always kind of 
coming up with new ideas. And you, you say carefully and critically, it rolls off your tongue so easily. That's a big part of what we are. We're not like running this cookie cutter, um, same as the same plan that worked in 1993 will work now kind of organization. <laughs> We're asking big questions about changes that are going on in the community and trying to figure out how we can help our clients and our friends grow and do better. Yeah, yeah, you know this this that idea about carefully and critically. I, I think I think it's actually been this podcast. So it's probably been the observations that sort of were built into that first book that we wrote, and then it's been this podcast where I've started to realize, Michael, that we have a generation of fundraisers um, that have come into the space in the last two decades, about the time that so. Um, I, I started in fundraising as did somebody I was talking to recently started like literally the same time, um, six months before September 11th. So that's a, this sort of this sort of world changing sort of moment in history, mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the 21st century. And um, and, and it's become this sort of messy, complex, pluralistic, hyper connected sort of world that we live in. And um, and and as I've listened to these conversations, Michael, that we've had here on the podcast, we sit here and we let people come on here have a 45-minute unstructured, unrehearsed conversation about whatever they've got an opinion on as it relates to fundraising. Um, there's a lot of people that are sort of wrestling about how this sort of goes about. Um, and so uh, I think that's what we're sort of trying to plug into is that sort of that angst, um, that angst that sort of exists in the in the nonprofit sector right now with um, sort of those tried and true early 20th century methods. Uh, we're trying to sort of stir that up, but enough about that. Again, folks, Michael is Michael Dixon is our new managing partner at Responsive Fundraising. I am delighted to partner and as a friend. And uh, and if you're interested in perhaps collaborating with us or perhaps joining our consulting team, please feel free to reach out to him. All those uh, all those decisions now go through him, and uh, and I'm just delighted to have you, Michael. We ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. Uh, we don't ask them to necessarily disclose what that is. I have a sense of the direction you're going to go, but uh, you might take us somewhere else. What are you thinking today? Well, about a week ago, you posted something on LinkedIn that um, I, you you um, you like to poke the bee's nest. You like to put a stick into things and and stir stuff up. And you did that yeah. about a week ago when you posted a, a post that in part said 80% of fundraising applicants don't want to interact interact with donors directly. And I think a lot of people pushed back on you on that. And they yeah. said, couldn't be that many. What the heck did you no mean? There was, they, they, they threw some mud at you. They probably threw some vegetables at you. It was, it was ugly, I got to say. And I watched a lot. I even weighed in a few times and tried yeah. to make my own points in there. And I think that you're, you're in, in a sense, you're absolutely right about that statement, but it probably needed a little more explanation than you gave it in that LinkedIn post. And so that's my big idea right now is let's try to dig into why is it that so many of the fundraising professionals that our clients interview for jobs really don't want to go one-on-one deep dive relationship with their donors. They really want this arm's length fundraising, this, you know, let's 
have a software package. Let's have a digital thing. Let's have a gala. Let's have a something where I don't have to actually know, meet, engage, you know, really owe anything to the to the donor. And some of this is technology driven. Some of it is these tried and true ideas from the past. But there's a there's an element of it that I'm fascinated by, which is that so many of our professionals in the industry view themselves as being my words. And I, I realize it's a little bit of a pejorative. They view themselves as servants to the donor. They're always sort of bowing and scraping and groveling to the donor. They don't take the time to meet the donor eyeball to eyeball, belly to belly, whatever metaphor you want to use as equals and yeah. and get into a real relationship with them. And I think when you say 80% don't want to deal directly, what, what you're saying or what I hear you saying is 80% don't want to meaningfully engage in a, in a, in a personal relationship with the donor. What, what, what do you, what do you think of that? Yeah. So let me, let's, so, uh, you know, you say something as many times as you do. And, um, and, and let me first say that sort of all of that is sort of a reflection of the work that went into the first book. And anybody who's read the first book knows that I make a strong case for this notion of arm's length fundraising, which largely received very positive response in the fundraising community. Um, a lot of fundraisers can sort of relate to having their professional identities really tied up into this notion of arm's length fundraising. That's why that first book did as well as it did. But the second thing is, is we're, we're creeping up here on about 325 conversations of this sort, like we're having, and these are conversations with fundraisers. So even in the midst of the pandemic, I've sort of been listening and sort of reading between the lines. And there's usually, there's, there's, for every phone conversation uh, or for every uh, podcast conversation, there's usually a, a phone conversation before and afterwards with either with, with that guest or with someone else that I've sort of just been sort of taking this mental note on the idea that a lot of fundraisers, uh, the, the, to quote the comment that I made there on the social, on the post, 80% of fundraising applicants don't want to interact with donors directly. And I think what I'm saying there, Michael, and, and, and I want to sort of really drive this point home. I'm saying 80, 80%, of fundraising applicants. So I'm talking about the people that are applying for jobs. So I'm not necessarily talking about the people that are sort of sitting in jobs now, but the more they become accustomed to and aware of sort of how fundraising works and the more they've sort of been peddled this, like, like this sort of very modern definition of what contemporary fundraising looks like. I, and, and when they also sort of get a read on what the expectations from the boards and the bosses are, I, I think, I think that word want is critically important to understand. I don't think they want to sort of be in meaningful interaction with these donors because of the implications that come on the back end of that, which is to say that if I lean into this relationship, and I remember this time and time again in my own fundraising career, and I'll get off my ranting here, but I remember in my own fundraising career, if, if the board of the boss sends you out to do a meeting, there's an expectation in a lot of organizations, large number of organizations, that when you go and interact with a donor directly, you're going to come back with a check. And organizations don't want to have to live up to that. I mean, fundraisers don't want to have to constantly live up to that expectation. They actually want to build meaningful relationships with these people. And so it's easier just to do a lot of arm's length fundraising stuff in order to avoid the uncomfortable pressure of feeling like, okay, I'm going to actually go out into the field, build a meaningful relationship with this person. And I've also got to bring a check home when I come back. 
that's where I think that want, it's a key word there is want. They don't want to have direct interaction because it carries with it a whole lot of baggage. It's that, it's that, exp- it's that baggage expression. Carries well, with it baggage. They're, 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 that expectation and that expectation that you're going to come back with a check runs totally counter to the idea of being in a meaningful relationship. Yeah, a meaningful yeah. relationship does not have a quid pro quo on every interaction. A meaningful relationship, the relationships we have with our families and with our close friends and our neighbors, they are often relationships that have give and take that, that don't reciprocate instantly or or always or equally even. And I think that's a real challenge, right? And and you add to that this idea that if I just had the right brochure, or I just had the right case statement, or I just had the right letter, I wouldn't have to go and spend the time with Mrs. whoever. I wouldn't have to go sit in her front room. I wouldn't have to eat her cookies or whatever. This this idea that I can somehow automate or mechanize or or make it so I can stay in my office where I'm comfortable and warm and secure. I think that's a big part of this. Yeah. Everybody who sort of pushed back on that notion that 80% of our fundraising applicants don't want to have meaningful, meaningful direct interaction with donors have got to think through the types of job descriptions we're handing these people. Uh, we're handing these people job descriptions that basically say either come back with a check or give us metrics that make us essentially give us some measure of sense of control or some degree of predictability on when you will. And last I checked, and I'm just sort of reflecting on my own experiences in building relationships with, you know, my wife and four kids and you and other people on our team, for example, relationships are not predictable and very rarely do the meaningful ones give you a sense of control. And that's what we're trying to basically weasel out of the fundraising process is we, we keep saying relationships. I've been hearing relationship this and relationship that my whole damn fundraising career. Um, but at the same time, I hear always come back with a check. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not the way relationships work. My relationship with you, you and I got to know each other two and a half, three and a half years ago. I didn't know where this was going to go. And it's formed it. We formed a meaningful, meaningful partnership that's taken a little over three years to sort of get right. And I don't think we're affording. I don't think we're affording relationships with our donors, the opportunity to get them right. And therefore the, the fundraisers come into these jobs knowing that. They intuitively know that. They know what their boards and bosses expect. Um, well, yeah. it's, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. You, you bring the, the, the length of time you and I knew each other, yep. face-to-face, virtual, a number of different ways. We interacted a lot of different ways about a lot of different things. And we challenged each other in meaningful ways. And ultimately, it grew into something really important. If we put that in the fundraising context, that that initial donor who wrote you a three-figure check either to attend an event or because of an annual fund or they got a letter or their friend asked them to contribute, that's not going to become a major gift without that time and without that interaction. And I think at a certain level, I think the executives, the boards and the bosses, they don't want the meaningful engagement to happen because they don't want any pushback on programmatic and missional direction, right? Uh, You know, I'm a board or a boss and I've got a direction I want to go. If I actually let my fundraiser start interacting with the donor, I'm going to have to start 
listening to the donor. I'm going to have to start hearing what they're saying and hearing their concerns and being responsive to those concerns. I'm not saying we got to do what the donor says, but we have to at least honor it enough to listen to what their concern is, right? Yeah. So I, I, I talked about this uh, with Louie on his podcast earlier this week. Uh, he had me on there and we had about 45 minutes to sort of talk about some of this stuff that's going into the new book. And, uh, and, and coincidentally, what came up was these, these school board meetings that we're seeing sort of play around the country and, and not, we didn't get into the politics of sort of what's going on, but I think, I think those school board meetings that are sort of happening around the country are an interesting way to sort of look through this notion of going from consumer to citizen, which is one of the ideas that I sort of introduce in the book. And that I think fundraising needs to be more conditioned on is that we we have we have built fundraising in the 20th century going all the way back to the very beginning uh, the early 20th century with modern fundraising based on the notion that our donors are consumers well that's not a genuine relationship I, i'm a consumer that buys shit at walmart and target but i don't have a genuine meaningful authentic relationship mm-hmm. with those people either they're just expecting me to buy something before i leave the store that's essentially the, the same underlying logic that we've sort of built contemporary fundraising on. And what I think, and, and that works in a very linear, predictable, maintains a sense of control for both people on the sides of the relationship, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what Louie and I were talking about on his podcast earlier this week. Those school board meetings, nobody feels like they're in control and none of it's very predictable and it's and everybody's got a really hot opinion about something as it relates to what's being taught in the classroom or how we deal with the safety as it relates to the pandemic or something or something and it's because those messy unpredictable relatively controlled but uncontrolled sort of school board meetings for example is what it means to be a citizen in this country and i don't think organizations know how to be citizens with their how to expect citizen like behavior of their donors we need to raise the bar in the 21st century we need to raise the bar on our donors and say you need to behave more like citizens rather than consumers. But that also means we've got to change our practices and quit treating them like consumers. We're not concierge to the rich and famous. Well, right. And I mean, how many times have we seen this? Um, I, I was, I, I sit on a, on a board and I was at the meeting last weekend and, and the executive was all excited about the wealth screening that had identified five families who've made insignificantly small gifts over the last five years. But we're going to go ask them for a major gift now because they're rich. That, right. you know what what i mean right. we've never right. talked to them before right we got right. this we got this insignificant gift from them a long time ago and we probably sent them a thank you letter we never we never list we never engaged them by the same token in the same exact meeting i'm talking with this executive and i mentioned a person that could buy and sell everybody on the list that he's looking at and i said so where are you with going to see jay oh well you know maybe you know I, you you went to see him 6 months ago are you going to go see him again well i i don't i don't know you know if you know come on guys if if this is a citizen relationship we need to interact more than just at the meeting more than just at the board meeting this this your idea of, of paralleling this to the school board meetings i find fascinating because isn't that the problem for how long have those two groups of people the people on the board and the people in the gallery, they haven't spoken to each other. 
Right. If right. they had ever interacted, if they just, you know, I, I've, I've lived in really, really small towns where you had to go to the post office to get your mail. And when you went to the post office to get your mail, you bumped into somebody. Right. And they filled you in on what was going on in town. If right. you didn't go pick up your mail every day, you were out of the loop, right? right? That's citizen behavior. That's continual relational talking to each other. And that's what we really need in this donor relationship. We need that that gift officer, that that employee, that person who's, who's dealing with donors to be in constant contact, not twice a year with a newsletter, you know? Well, and you think yeah, so? So I, I, I'm sort of agnostic on the the well screening data. Uh, I don't. I'm not biased towards them, but I'm not necessarily thinking that they help a lot. I talk to a lot of employers, for example, um, and I tell them that the worst thing you can do is put a well screening, a point of well screening information in front of a you know a major gifts officer, and then send him or her out into the field and expect them to build a meaningful relationship because you basically put put this barrier between of authenticity. You've you sort of eliminated right. the chance mm-hmm. of any authenticity in the relationship. And I go back to that. Again, we're, we're sort of, we're really driving home the point of that, that post that I made last week on, on LinkedIn, 80% of fundraising applicants don't want to interact with donors directly. I would say that a large reason that is, and, and some of the people who inter- interacted within that chain of communication know exactly where I'm coming from on this point. When you have a development officer who is hired to raise money and you hand them that data point, I've been handed the data point. I worked at a large health charity in Washington. I know what that data says about what that donor is capable of doing. But I can't, once I go out into the field with that data in my hand and my boss and my board back at the office know that the donor that I've just scored a meeting with in Pittsburgh is like super extraordinarily wealthy. They've now set this expectation extraordinarily high. I'm not just managing my own expectations, the expectations of the donor, but I'm managing these expectations of the board and the boss back at the office. That's the reason they don't want to interact with. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I think this podcast alone has proven that we've got highly conversational fundraisers out there, people who are perfectly capable of of wanting to develop meaningful, genuine relationships. It's that whether or not we create, and this gets to, oh, you just got me warmed up, Michael. This is what we're doing, folks, at Responsive. This has just turned into a total commercial here today. Um, We've got to create places where fundraising can thrive. And by doing that, you can sort of flip this statistic that I'm start. we're, we're sort of screaming here today. You can flip that. You can turn that around if you create an environment where the pacing and the expectations of what the board and the boss expect as it relates to what the fundraiser and the donor can be expected to do in terms of exchanging gifts. But look, look, folks, if you want to push back on this, um, that's not the world. That's not the environments we're creating. That's not, that's just, that's not the world. That's not what we're creating for these people to work in. It, it's not it's not referential to the way relationships work in the world, right? Uh, you know, you, you're a married father of four. You you built a meaningful relationship over decades with your spouse. I've done the same thing. Those relationships didn't didn't go from oh, I saw that person across the coffee shop 
to where they are today in the blink of an eye. And I think that's where, as you say, just having that data point ruins the authenticity of the relationship. The relationship is, oh, you look interesting. Oh, we both have a common interest. Let's meet and talk about our common interest. Let's deepen our knowledge about each other and that common interest. And over time, we will grow to a more fulfilled relationship and in a fundraising space that will hopefully lead to larger and more significant support to the mission we both care about. But that didn't happen in a, in a snapshot in one meeting. Yeah. So let's put, let's talk about the elephant in the room though, too, because I don't think a lot of people saw this and I know we're talking about the diversity, equity, inclusion in the sector, but a lot of people who chimed in on that, that exchange that day decided to, they, 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 they sort of chimed in, they gave their two cents and they sort of disappeared. And it wasn't until late in the day on that particular day that Catherine, um, one of our fundraising colleagues in New York City, she chimes in. She's an African-American woman and she chimes in on the point. And she says, in my opinion, as a black social entrepreneur, it may be that many of the funders do not mirror those of us seeking funding, which is the reason why many of us do not interact with our donors directly. And I think that's something we got to think about. This goes all the way back to early 20th century PR and marketing. We've built these highly homogeneous donor populations that basically look like you and me, Michael. They basically look like rich white people. They probably got more money in the bank than you and I combined have. But nonetheless, when you and I, two white guys show up, we feel very comfortable, but we need to sort of balance the expectations that we have for this. You know, we're not, we're not sort of, we're not reconciling the fact that we want to be more diverse, equitable, and inclusive in our staffing. And we're not balancing with our fundraising methods. The 21st century is going to have to sort of, 21st century fundraising is going to have to reconcile the fact that all of our practices in the 20th century were designed to create these highly homogeneous populations of donors. And so like Catherine's pointing out, yeah, I'm one of those 80% who don't want to show up and meet with somebody who doesn't look like me, who who has never been anywhere close to where I live in the world and quite honestly never wants to. And, and that's been my experience. I mean, and I, I, I think you could probably speak from your experience too. You've done your share of fundraising. I very rarely have the donors that I've sat across the table from as a, as a, as a white guy, not basically sort of lived and looked like the world that I come from. And we as creators of, of what this all sort of works out to be, um, we kind of wrestle with some of this stuff. This is this is this is rough and uncomfortable stuff. No, I I'm intrigued by that by that direction and and Catherine raises a really important point, right? In the corporate world, I think the corporate world addressed this um DEI stuff a generation ago, maybe 20 years ago, where they made a, an affirmative decision. And I worked for big mega corporations for a long time. And they would say things in meetings like, sometimes people want to buy from people that look like them. Yep. So yep. they hired a diverse sales pool. Now, whether yep. they hired diversity 
across their corporate structure. I'm not making that argument, but I am making the argument that the big mega corporations decided a long time ago, we need a diversity of our of our sales staff because our buyers are getting more diverse. And that was both gender and, and racial diversity in that, in that sense. Our situation in the fundraising space is a, a pivot from that. It's a, it's a tick off of that because so many of the funders are old white people. Yep. And we've got to think about that. We want to diversify our fundraising pool, but we've got to make sure that our our, our gift officers, our development staff, we want diversity in that staff, especially if our mission is a diverse caring ministry. But at the same time, so many of those have this have this cultural disconnect with the donor. And I think that becomes a challenge. We've got to get get our our arms around it's it's funny. I'm I'm I don't think um because we're not using video, I'm wearing my my block, my hood, my city T-shirt today. Huge organization that does youth development work and youth empowerment work on the west side of Chicago. Great organization. I'm a fantastic supporter of theirs. Um, I know a lot of their staff, right? They're a great organization, but how are they doing at engaging people that look like me to get us to be donors to their cause? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I think there's a lot of expectation that's being put on. So we react the way that some people did to that particular that little snippet of thought that I put out there in the uh, in the universe last week. But I don't think that we're sort of connecting the dots between what our uh, you know our our aspirations are. And then sort of what they translate into reality. And I think it makes it very comfortable when we have. When you're the fundraiser and you don't feel like in any meaningful way you can identify with the individual, that, that, that's what a, I've heard from a lot of people here on the podcast over the last, say, 6, 12 months, is that, yeah, I can probably build a meaningful relationship with that person. And, yeah, um, I can do my job really well. And, yeah, I'll ask for a $50,000 check. But if I don't identify with that person on the other side of the table in any meaningful way, and then that and that donor doesn't demonstrate any commitment to sort of bridging that, what we'll, we'll just sort of call it awkwardness, um, that disconnect, um, then I don't think it's all that difficult for us to really sort of own up to a statistic like I was sort of suggesting last week. Um, I mean, these these donor populations that we have built for organizations large and small, um, largely appeal to a suburban, affluent, white population. And that's not going to make any any aspiration that you have to have more diversity on your staff is not going to happen um, if uh, – if if the expectation is they sit in front of people, it, it's just not. And and I and I don't. And I'm just sort of I'm just sort of echoing some of the things that people here on the podcast have told us. I I'm I'm intrigued by what you're saying because I feel it's it's critically important. But it's just as important if we go if we if we roll back to my initial statement that too many of our development officers take a servant mentality toward their. Donor concierge mentality is the word you use, oh, which is yes, a much better word for our conversation. Yeah, yeah but yeah. if if you take um, either a young person or even a middle aged person who is not of means, and you yeah. put them in front of a very wealthy donor, they're going to very quickly 
risk is very quickly they drop into this what can i do for you mode instead of eyeball to eyeball how can we work together to address a concern of ours right and that leads us and i'm i'm not saying it's not in large part often driven by the donor yeah i've been in those meetings with extremely wealthy donors to whom I am just a means to a tax deduction or a means yeah, to yeah. a warm glow of feeling like they help the underprivileged. At the same time, though, I see it now in my current place in life. I see it from gift officers who call on me. They're always kissing my butt. I don't want my <laughs> butt kissed. I want somebody to talk to me about what's important in the world, right? And I think that's that's something that we're missing somewhere around here. And we need to be thinking about that when we hire and thinking about that when we train and thinking about that when, as you say, when we give direction and job description. I don't want you going out there yeah. and 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 trying to be subservient to these people. I want you to go out there and engage them one-on-one. Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's the thing, and, and that's the state. There was there was a there was a young fundraiser that we were talking to. I don't know somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, and and they used this statement concierge, and and I sort of attached the notion of concierge to the rich and famous, and I think and I sort of connect that with to sort of shift the conversation a little bit away from the DEI conversation to this conversation that we've been hearing a lot about in the fundraising space. Again, I'm just sort of really driving home the point of why that 80% statistic that we shared last week is so is perhaps really, really accurate because we've been talking about in the fundraising space about this notion of donor dominance and donor dominance being something that Heather Hill and her colleagues have sort of been, um, you know, beating a drum on uh, for quite some time. She was, she was a guest here on the podcast, probably 200 episodes back on this point. And when you think about the idea that when you, when you root fundraising tradition and, and fundraising practices and consumer logic, and, and we all sort of turn out this, we sort of, these concierge to the rich and famous, you take that self-interested donor behavior that gets all the way to this idea of donor dominance that Heather and her colleagues are basically talking about, where donors are totally crossing the line. And I, and I, so I think we've just got to really think about what type of environment, what type of environment are we creating? And are we creating an environment, because this is, this is one of our mantras here at, at Responsive, are we creating an environment where those on both sides of the exchange, the donor and the donor and the uh, fundraiser, whoever's sort of facilitating the exchange with the donor, um, can have a meaningful and authentic experience? And that's not going to happen when we sort of bake into the process a lot of these consumer-like assumptions. That's that's isn't that the essence of basically what we're talking about, Michael? Is that we've baked into the assumption, baked into the system, these consumer-like assumptions. Where predictability and control um, are sort of, you know, sort of just tagged right behind perhaps um, notions of efficiency and a couple of other things. No, I think all of that is true. I think it's also important to understand that we get there when we start with this, this PR and promotion starter on this. But yeah. if we just had the right case for support, if we just had the right advertising, we just had the right photo and the mailer right. and, and everybody that we mail to, um, I heard, I heard someone use this phrase last week in a fundraising meeting. You were in the room. I don't know if it caught your ear the way it just graded on mine was, you know, well, that's the beginning of the sales funnel. 
Yeah. Well, right. we got to do that because it's the beginning of the sales funnel. Yeah. No, that's not what we're doing. That that is that is this predictability model that you've been talking about for years. Just because I put ten thousand names into the top of the funnel does not mean I'm going to get five hundred major donors. It just doesn't work. Or fifty. It doesn't matter. You can apply whatever ratio to it you want. It doesn't work that way, and it doesn't work without human interaction, and and equally. Equally authentic human interaction is what I think we're saying today. Yeah, so I start my classes over at the college next week, Michael. And you know, the I teach, I teach a couple of these this semester. I'm teaching a couple of uh, couple of sections with the same course about nonprofit nonprofit <laughs> leadership and management. And one of the things that we're going to talk about in that class at the very beginning of the semester is this idea that we sort of confuse the values and the um, the aspirations of the various different sort of corners of our of our economy. And, and, and I largely see that a lot of what you and I and our team at responsive are sort of pushing back on is that we've, we've sort of wholesale adopted these, these ideas from the marketplace about how we can sort of get this done really well. But we also forget the fact folks, we forget the fact that a lot of us fleed the marketplace. We were looking for a different sort of sort of place to sort of do our work and find meaning in the marketplace oftentimes is that place that we were leaving. Well, I think when it comes to fundraising, I said this to somebody else the other day, um, we, we, we sort of forgot to leave some of those assumptions, PR marketing and advertising sort of assumptions oriented towards a consumer. We sort of forgot to leave those in the marketplace. And so we've we fleed the marketplace, knowing that it wasn't giving us what we want, knowing that we couldn't find what we wanted, looking to the nonprofit sector to give us something else. But we carried with us the tools that were actually probably bothering us. There. Um, you know, well, it, it, it's, no, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's interesting. You, you, got, you got to draw a line. You talk about the marketplace and you use the Walmart target analogy. That's very true here. But, but all of us have made choices in our daily lives to shop, to engage in the marketplace in unique sure. and meaningful ways. Yep. I, I have a dog, as you know, and my dog, you know, is needy and dependent. And I think we can say anxiety ridden. <laughs> I think that was a phrase used recently. My dog is anxiety ridden, but I shop for my dog at a local pet store owned by a wonderful woman that I know. And I see her walking her dogs in the neighborhood. She sees me walking my dogs in the neighborhood. Yeah, I could buy that dog food for less somewhere else. I could be, make a market transaction online and yeah. be better off in a yeah. market sense. But instead, I want to be meaningfully engaged in my community. So I shop in my community. I yeah. go to the local farmer's market. I buy from the local baker because I want to be part of a community like that. And then somehow I go to work in the nonprofit space and they say, oh, no, just, just mail 10,000 pieces to whoever. Just buy a list from whatever and mail it out because that's what really matters. No, if I believe, if I meaningfully believe in my community and my baker yeah. and my, you know, um, I live here on the south side and I always joke that I can't go anywhere in my neighborhood and there isn't a picture of President Obama on the wall of the shop because he lived in the neighborhood, he shopped in the neighborhood, and every place I go, there's a picture of the president on the wall, probably signed by him, right? Because we're a community here, and we all believe in the same things here, and we work together, and we support each other, and we buy from each other. Why do we think when we go to work in the nonprofit space, we can somehow turn it on its head and behave like Walmart, right? You know, you got me thinking that 
Because you're exa- you're exactly right, and, so, and and this is the this is what the this is what in the marketplace they're calling the enlightened consumer. So the enlightened consumer. So there are enterprises in the marketplace that are realizing that the um, sort of the 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 race to the lowest expectations is is one of the ways that perhaps some of the ways that the 21st century consumer market sort of worked is that we were constantly lowering expect expectations on both sides of the marketplace exchange. And consequently it created a mess. It created a lot of the mess that we see in our society now that a lot of us in the nonprofit sector are like pushing against. And so we're trying to get to this place and you see enterprises where they're saying, okay, we want to tap into this idea that there's an enlightened consumer out there and we will actually want to have higher expectations of our consumers, which means in some cases we're going to expect them to purchase products that are actually appropriately priced that um, that are actually going to last mm-hmm. longer uh, where they're going to buy food products that are actually healthy for them and consequently we're going to have have to have you know if they're if the customer's going to have higher expectations of us we're going to have to have higher expectations of them and I think that's some of the key stuff that we're talking about here that I don't think the fundraising world is sort of caught up on is that it's, and, and this goes all the way back to the, uh, the comment about the, uh, the conversation we were having about the boardroom. We've sort of made this run up until this pandemic. We had this good run, perhaps public education had a good couple of decades where people weren't showing up for board meetings. But when people start showing up for board meetings, what's basically happening there is both sides of the relationship are basically saying we have higher expectations of you and you're going to have to have higher expectations of us. Um, And I think that's where fundraising sort of is. Um, And it's going to require a lot of catching up. This gets to we're going to wrap up on this thought because higher expectations is probably where I wanted to land. I think that there's going to be an evolution over the next perhaps decade of what those expectations are of the consultancy world. So those of us who are privileged with the the opportunity to be in advisory type roles to nonprofit organizations and to the next generation of nonprofit leaders, I think they're going to, I know, I know, I know this for certain, they're going to have higher expectations of us than what they've tolerated and been comfortable and content with in the 20th century for the last several decades um, and, and, and into the 20, you know, the first couple of decades of the 21st century. It's going to evolve. It's going to change. That's essentially what we're doing, Michael. Well, and I, I agree with you 100%, but I would add the, the other side of that lens, which is I think we're getting a – instead of a bell curve, we're getting a barbell. There's going to be one direction that's going to go to this wildly, uniquely, highly relational communication, yeah. and then you're going to go the other direction, which is the – it's the um, – it's in the fundraising space, it's the digital, mobile, on-demand $5 gift. Right. That has no yeah. expectations at all. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and we're going to see it. We're going to see it pull apart and treating both of those things like they can be done by the same group of humans is is a is a recipe for failure. And that may be the idea we need to dr- dig into the next time we have one of these, because you can't have the person that that is deeply ingrained in the five dollar digital also be the person that sits in front of the fifty thousand dollar donor. They're different skill sets requiring different kinds of people with different purposes, goals and metrics and measures. 
There you have it, folks. There's Michael Dixon, our new managing partner at Responsive Fundraising. Uh, I certainly enjoyed this conversation today with you, Michael. Uh, for our listeners, if you're interested in working with Responsive, perhaps interested in uh, some consulting services for your nonprofit organization, or perhaps joining our team, please feel free to reach out to Michael anytime. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.